welcome to a radical discussion of independence, free will, liberty, and the left-hand path. This is Damonosophy 2.0 with your host, Paul Frederick. Well, greetings, friends and fellow Damons, and welcome to another episode of Damonosophy 2.0. Today, I have a special treat for you. Um, I have a recording of a talk given by our good friend Toby Chapel, Grandmaster of the Order of the Trapezoid of the Temple of Set. If you remember, he uh, we've had him on to interview before and, and had his talks before. We always enjoy um, what he has to say. Um, also, you will be able to see Toby speaking live, along with myself, at the upcoming uh, Black Flame PDX Festival in Portland, weekend of uh, April 30th. So you can go uh, check them out online for more information on how to get tickets about that. In the meantime, um, I'm going to share with you this talk, which took place actually last October in at a gathering in Prague. And um, he gets into some really uh, interesting stuff on here. So without further ado, I will let it let Toby speak for himself. And here he is. So to open this, I'm going to read a brief quote from uh, Sesamus Flower's uh, book, Alu, a revised handbook of operative rheology. Uh, and as you'll see throughout this, some of the ideas that are both original to him and were synthesized by him in his own academic research into the runes and linguistics will form some of the basis for what I'm talking about here. People who think magic works like science are mistaken. Those who believe magic has objective rules that, if followed correctly, will yield the prescribed results are in error. The chief reason these statements are true is that magic and its operation hinge mainly on the state of being of the operator, the magician himself. This state of being has two aspects, capacity and performance. One can only perform within one's capacity, and this capacity is subject to development. But each individual performance will vary in its level of power, and thus efficacy. This is true of every human endeavor. Magic is no different. The magician must first and foremost be dedicated to the development of the self, of the very capacity or ability to do magic. If you're going to do that, you have to have a model. Helps if you have a good model. So you're all familiar with the model that we use. The, the dichotomy between the subjective and the objective universe themselves combine into the universe with a capital U that is the entirety of both of these. I'm not going to recount the entire chapter because you all know where to find it. Then goes on to expand on the model to talk about the natural and the non-natural and the subjective and objective approaches to both of these. This is the basis of the theory of magic and the model of magic that we work within. These are conceptual models. Conceptual models are not scientific models. Scientific models are things like the theory of gravity. They make 
specific predictions, they can be experimentally proven again and again and again. Conceptual models are different. Conceptual models give us a way to frame reality. They give us a way to think about reality and to think about what we can do with it. Conceptual models cannot be proven. They're not scientific models. Conceptual models are useful only in so much as they provide context and they provide a means of working with their assumptions. Black magic theory of the universe, not a scientific model, conceptual model. This is why you can't say things like, prove to me that magic exists. Magic is a mode of thinking. Magic is not a scientific method. Magic is about the meaning you ascribe to things. It's about the, the, the changes that you make in your own understanding of them that allow you to work with them at ever greater uh, efficiency. These can be supported by scientific models. It must be. You can't completely fly in the face of reality and decide, I'm going to do magic so that I can fly across the room right now. Well, if I say I'm going to speak a spell that lets me fly across the room, not going to work. If I say I'm going to invoke Delta.com and purchase an airline ticket to Prague, it's going to work. Scientific models, cognitive models, conceptual models. This is not a new problem. This is something people have thought about for a while. Most of the models of magic that we think of uh, date back as far as mid-late 19th century. Now there's a reason behind the timing there. So of the people, primarily anthropologists, who were working with models of magic in the 19th century, they were predominantly British, French, and Dutch. What did those three nations have in common in the late 19th and early 20th centuries? Anyone? Right. They weren't Catholic. <laughs> they were empires. You're correct. They were the three remaining big empire builders at the time, which meant they had lots of people that were their subjects and they were responsible for who were not of their same cultural background and not of their same ethnicity. Therefore, they were very interested in understanding, we don't understand what these people do. Why can't they come just come do science with the rest of us? They do this other stuff. Now, many of you are familiar with James Fraser and the Golden Bough. Many more of you are familiar with it than have read the entire 13-volume original set of it. Most of what you find in bookstores is a very condensed version. Full disclosure, I've not read the entire 13-volume thing either. <laughs> I don't think I've met anyone who has it. Have you? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> It's what you're supposed to you, you have the reference, not for reading on, on the hand. Um, <laughs> maybe if you have trouble sleeping, it would be So Fraser's theory, Fraser's theory of magic, excuse me, um, there is no I, it's Fraser, not Fraser, um, is typically referred to as the sympathetic theory of magic. He did not entirely admit this, but he was the one who popularized this. And we're going to talk about this a bit more because this kind of sets the stage for where this is going. In brief, the sympathetic theory of magic is based on the ideas of the laws of sympathy and contagion. Sympathy means that things that are alike affect things that are alike. It means if you have a representation of the person you're going to affect, then you can affect them by proxy. The law of contagion is that of touch. It means that if I view an object with magic properties, 
and I give that object to someone else, they receive the magic. You'll notice that whenever uh, that most of the time that you see depictions of magic in fiction, film, uh, books, etc., they're using theory similar to this. Those of you who have read the classic M.R. James story, Casting the Runes, where a, a curse is inscribed on a piece of paper and ends up with the wrong person, and that person is affected by the curse. Law of contagion. You still see this today in some contexts. Law, law of sympathy, like attracts like. This thing is analogous to that thing. I want this thing, therefore I want that thing. You see the, the nice shiny car ad that has the nice bikini flat model on it. You think that having the car gets you the model, you buy the car. You don't get the model. You don't get with it. But again, sympathetic magic. Transference of this thing and that thing have an intimate relationship. I work with this thing, I want that thing, therefore this thing comes along with it. Now this is not a bad theory of magic. It definitely has some flaws, and it definitely doesn't cover everything, that's why I have something to talk about. But it's really not bad in terms of the attitude that Fraser and others would have had. Many of Fraser's ideas were influenced by uh, the founder of cultural anthropology, E.B. Tyler. Now Tyler is one of those people that his ideas are still well known today within the cultural anthropology field. The high priest can tell you more than you'll ever want to know about this. Um, but like many people that are on the beginnings of new fields of study, their ideas later become much more so that you can prove that you're familiar with them when you talk about them, more than you still use them. So Taylor had this idea of an evolutionary model. Again, we're thinking, remember that we're having colonial powers attempting to understand why the people that are within their power think the way that they do, because it's different from their own models. Tyler had this idea that there was an evolutionary model of thought in magic and religion within the world, and that the natural progression of this, of course, was from savagery to barbarism to civilization. This is, of course, the attitude you would expect from an educated 19th century Victorian gentleman. And in fact, that's referring to right? you see this in their Egyptology as well, is the idea that uh, the point of Egyptology is to develop into a 19th century Victorian gentleman. <laughs> Fraser took this a little bit further. His idea of evolution was from magic to religion to science. Very modernist approach. The idea that you start off with magic because you don't really understand how the world works, and then you realize that, ah, it's all in the sky. If we worship the things in the sky correctly, then things work more reliably. And then later you realize that, oh, we don't need the things in the sky, we just need to know the laws that cause the sky to still be up there. It's a nice linear time frame, ties everything up in a nice neat bow. Anything you study with humans that is tied up in a nice linear time frame, in a nice neat bow, is wrong. <laughs> or at best, incomplete. Now, the interesting thing about this, that's not a very scientific approach to magic here. You know, it's not experimentally verified. It's just the, oh, well, there's, I have this model of the way I want things to work. And, of course, they go from magic to religion to science. The major shortcoming with uh, this theory is that it's more about why people think magic works than how magic works. Oh, the magic worked because I touched the right thing. The magic worked because I had the right image in my mind. And then Fraser would, would then say that 
but those were incorrect because it was really science that, that, that did it, not magic. You just thought magic did it because you don't understand science. And so this is not much use to us because we're more interested in actual reasons, not just a speculation here. So we need a better model. And we need a model that perhaps starts with the assumption that maybe magic does work. And if it does work, why? Not just why do people think magic works when it doesn't. As I alluded to before, some of this is going to be reminiscent of Sisyphus Flower's academic work. This line of thinking did not originate with him. Among other things, I had done a, a very thorough survey of the field as part of his own PhD work in rings and magic that he then saw connections to, uh, later saw connections to the way that the temple approaches magic and was able to import some of this information and some of this approach into the temple. Now keep in mind, Sisyphus Flowers entered the temple in 1984, just prior to his PhD being awarded, and so a lot of his research had been done even before he was in the temple. So this is not a setting and attempting to figure this out. This was someone who figured this out, then found the temple, and then realized, hey, we're on the same page here. We'll talk a bit about the black magic theory of the universe just for a recap and to frame the parts that I'm going to go over here. So of course we have the subjective universe, the objective universe. Going back to the idea of models, these are models. This is not a, show me where the subjective universe exists. It doesn't, it doesn't exist in that sense. It exists in the sense that we can conceptualize it, and by conceptualizing things in this way, we can do certain things, and we can understand what we're doing magically in certain ways. The subjective universe, of course, is the perceptual world of any individual sentient being. The objective universe is the laws of physics, the material things of the universe, their interactions, the things that happen with no intelligence necessarily guiding it. The definition of magic we're gonna work with here is uh, my own sort of wording of the way that it's described in the temple. This is not a, a new definition of magic. Is that perceptual changes can be made permanent within the, the subjective universe and then when necessary can create perceptual changes in the observable world. Note part of it when necessary. Much of the magic that you do, much of the, the greater black magic that you do, is only visible to you within your subjective universe. It may, when needed, have an effect on the objective world. It does not have to. Now, some of it should. You can't have it all just inside because then you're sort of disappearing down the little subjective rabbit hole. And so what you're doing when you work magic that is intended to affect the objective universe is you are reconfiguring a portion of the objective universe to more closely match your desired form, the form that has arisen within your subjective universe. First, the magician must transform himself. Now, this use of subjective and objective, and this is, this is a, often a stumbling point in understanding these definitions within the temple, this is different from <coughs> and used in a very specific way that's different from the colloquial usage of these terms. Normally when, some, when someone says something subjective, you think, oh, that's just your opinion, it's not based on fact, uh, it's just your preference. When someone says something is objective, the colloquial usage says that this is, uh, this is a demonstrable fact, this is a law of physics, a law of science, etc. Now, this is not the way that these terms are used within the setting of black magic theory of the universe. They, in fact, derive from linguistic usage of subject and object within sentences. 
I write a letter. I is the subject, the letter is the object. The doer, the thing acted upon. Similarly, with the subjective universe, the I is the one that is working within, that possesses that subjective universe, creates change within it. The objective universe, the object of my magic, first is myself, then when needed, can be something outside of myself. So this is a much more precise approach to that than just the sort of the knee-jerk normal reaction of subjective means, oh, that's just your opinion. Now the subjective universe can be the object of its own actions. This is in fact what greater black magic is. The subjective universe as its own object that is affected. Again, conceptualizing linguistic terms, I write the letter, I act upon that letter to cause it to come into being. I make a change within my subjective universe, I act upon my subjective universe to cause a change within it. And even when I write the letter, I made a decision and an act within my subjective universe to, to write a letter, I impress that on the objective universe. Now, if you understand and have a more accurate model of the objective universe, you can use that to model within the subjective universe more effectively. If you want to affect the world and you don't actually have any clue how it works, you're going to fail. If you have a better understanding of how physics works, how interpersonal relations work, how politics work, how advertising works, you can affect them much more effectively because what you have to change within your subjective universe to make a change is smaller, easier to contain, easier to work with. Smaller things are easier to cause to happen than big things. But you gotta start with the small things and work them up into the bigger things. An interesting side note of this, I'm not gonna go into a lot of detail about this, but uh, I, I think that is worth sharing, is the term subjective universe is actually not unique to the temple. Not necessarily in exactly our, our conception of it, but there's a lot of dialogue here. The semiotician uh, Jakob von Juxkul, who was an Estonian-born German residing and speaking philosopher from his uh, late 19th century, had an idea that he referred to as Umfeld. Now, like with many technical German philosophical <coughs> terms, they are nearly impossible to translate into English because the concepts are, in the words are not connected in the ways that make it easy to translate. Now, interestingly, the most common translation used in particularly biological literature around uh, von Schools ideas is that of subjective universe, is, is the meaning of Umfeld. What he means is the perceptual environment of an organism. What it understands about its environment, what it understands about its place within that environment, and how it's going to affect that environment. Now it's pretty close to what we're looking at here. We're looking at this from more of a philosophical viewpoint rather than biological viewpoint. Although, as incarnate intelligences, we cannot ignore our biological component. For better or worse, it's part of what we have to work with. So we're going to talk a bit about the semiotics and magic here. There are several components to the semiotic theory of magic. So semiotics in, is the study of signs and symbols and their relationship to real things and how they are understood in the context of real things. The semiotic theory of magic, taking a step further from the sympathetic theory, says that in order to manipulate yourself, 
and by extension manipulate that beyond the self, you must manipulate the symbols that you use to represent these things correctly. There are several foundational ideas on this. The British philologist uh, J.L. Austin uh, wrote a book called How to Do Things with Words. It introduced an idea called performative speech or performative utterance. We do this without understanding what we're doing all the time. Think about a marriage ceremony. The minister or the, the person otherwise qualified says, I now pronounce you man and wife. By the act of speaking that phrase, by someone doing it within the correct context and with the correct authority, it has immediately come into being that has happened. Same person saying that you're drunk at a party saying, I now pronounce you man and wife. It doesn't work. Same person, same authority, wrong context. Performative speech is one of the basis of magic in the semiotic theory. It is how we bring things into being. We state things as we wish them to be. Not, I want this to happen. It's, this has happened. We're going to talk about this a bit more in terms, in specifically studying terms in a few minutes. Jan von Ball, going back to our discussion about colonial powers, Jan von Ball was an anthropologist, <coughs> Dutch anthropologist, and was also, for a time, the governor of Papua New Guinea, which was, in his time, a colony of, uh, of the Dutch. His book, Symbols for Communication, emphasized a particular thing, that magic is, a, is man's communication with the universe as he understands it. The idea that magic is an act of communication. That when you are doing magic, you are stating what you wish to be to the subjective or the objective universe. Then you are doing manipulating necessary symbols to make it happen, and then you receive in return a return of communication of this phenomenon that you were bringing into being. This is a crucial idea that has several more slides around it. So just, just sort of touching on the beginnings of it here. There was also Stanley Tambia who in an essay called The Magic Power of Words, introduced the idea of ascriptive meaning. Ascriptive means, is essentially to assign meaning to something, to give it a meaning that it may not inherently have, but which you bring to it and act as if that meaning is now part of the thing. It's how we give significance to things. Those of you familiar with the nine angles will see the importance of the third angle in this crucial conjunction between the subjective and the objective universe, where we create meaning out of things in order to give them their proper place in our subjective universe. Assignment of meaning is about the subjective universe. The meaning I assign to something is not the meaning that Free Schmidt has for it. They may, they may line up. They may often do if we're all on the same page about what we're doing. But even then, there will be shades of experience, shades of cultural linguistic differences, etc., that are still going to vary that meaning slightly. Finally, the Scandinavist Ronald Grambo, in an essay called The Models of Magic, uh, introduced a further idea. He was the one who coined the term semiotic theory of magic, the idea that things have cultural representations that can be manipulated as part of the act of magic. He was doing this specifically within analyzing some old Swedish material, uh, that was his area of specialty. But the ideas are clearly expandable beyond that. If Sismus Flowers then applied this, synthesized all of these in his PhD dissertation, Runes of Magic, 
So in semiotic itself, you have um, you have signs and symbols, and you have the way they've been encoded and decoded. Now, sign doesn't mean a sigil or or like a sign on a road. A sign is anything that is object re represented in your understanding. If I say, you know, don't think of a pink elephant, a pink elephant that just arrived in your mind's eye is a symbol that you now all have, and you all bring your own meaning to. So signs, whether it's words, pictures, or ideas, have to be, in order to be communicated, have to be encoded and decoded. So right now I am encoding my ideas in the English language. You are decoding it using your understanding of the English language. The more similar we are, those of you who are uh, from the United States, with allowances for my slight southern accent, probably understand me quite clearly. Those of you for whom uh, English is a second or third or, or more language may not understand quite as clearly. But nonetheless, I'm using it as the means that I communicate. And so your ability to understand me will vary greater or lesser depending on the, the extent to which we have a similar understanding of, of, of English. This is the same with magic. If you were encoding, if you're working within a group with, with magic, the more similar that you understand the symbols you're working with, the more effectively you can work magic as a group. This is one of the reasons that with group workings, especially the conclaves, we, we often, but, are, but not always, use things like the invocation of set as given in the crystal tablet. We use, often use, but not always, the structure to ring the bell, open the gate, and, and, and so forth. These become a sort of meta-language that we can use to communicate with each other about magic. We, we all know these are not the only ways to do magic, but they make it, they give us something that we can all be similar with in a way that we can understand each other and communicate more clearly. Another key component for the semiotic theory of magic is the idea that hidden meaning that we ascribe to phenomena that we create or experience become partners in our communication with the subjective and the objective universe. Magic is a conversation. You speak words or you have images or thoughts moving toward the ideas and that you are attempting to bring into being, they speak back to you. Have you ever had the experience of you, you make a statement of something that you wish to bring into being without it working, and then the answer arrives, or a possible answer arrives? And I don't mean necessarily words, I mean you, you may have the realization of what's needed, you may have the, real, the understanding of what must be done next. These are all answers in, in the same sense. And so the key to all this becomes finding the effective mode of address. This is why you throw a bunch of random elements into a working, it may not work as well as one that was carefully planned that is resonant with the aims you're attempting to bring into being. Similarly, with this linguistic model of communication I, I mentioned earlier, I start making up words, you're not going to understand what I'm talking about. I lapse into various slang. Some of you will know, some of you won't. If I want you to understand what I'm talking about, I have to talk about it in language and in a manner that is easier to, to understand. Similarly with magic, if you want your magic to work, you have to make it more resonant with the end you're actually trying to be in the being. Going back to the work of Jan van Ball, there is a sort of a, a map that Obsistence Flowers has used in several places. This is not original to him, although his interpretation uh, is, is somewhat uh, as my interpretation. Flowers is of the opinion that 
especially with work with the runes, although possibly beyond that, that operative communication says something about what we're doing that magic does not. Doesn't mean magic is the wrong term. Doesn't mean that we're trying to get rid of the word magic and setting discourse, uh, because we, we do use it in a very specific sense. We understand it in a specific way. But if magic is a communicative act, and the object of that communication is to cause things to happen, to operate on the subjective or objective universe, operative communication is a way of conceptualizing that that doesn't carry some of the baggage that the term magic does. It means you don't have to explain, oh, we're not talking about safe magic. Or, or put a K on it so that you can pretend you're talking about Crowley's approach to magic. Which, by the way, you, you know one of the real reasons he did that right. If you take the Roman alphabet, if you use A equals 1, B equals 2, C equals 3, and so forth, M-A-G-I-C adds up to 33. Nice old A on word. K is the 11th letter of the alphabet. Now it adds up to 44. Nice Thelemic word. I'm going to talk about this model, because this is sort of the, um, the kind of the linchpin of this. In this map, this map of communication, this map of operative communication, or what we call magic, you have the subject, man, should be capitalized, means generically man, is the subject, the one who is doing the magic, has something they are using, something they are manipulating, the symbol, what they're what their intent to symbolize as. Again, symbol is not just a sigil, symbol is a word, an idea, a thought, a picture, an image, an object, etc. They're attempting to give this direct object that has meaning to something else, the indirect object of their intent. This is the other, the re other reality that was outside themselves now, even with the subjective universe, the thing you're affecting is outside of yourself. You have to create it to bring it into your, uh, create within your subjective universe for it to exist. If you didn't have to make some act of magic in order to have it be part of your subjective universe, then it was already part of it, and you didn't need to do the magic. So, other reality, what, what you are attempting to affect here. In turn, the other reality as affected becomes the subject in a return communication to you. For example, if I say, I am writing you a letter, and then he responds with something along the lines of, I wrote you a letter too. When I communicated to him, I am the subject. <coughs> Letter's the object, he's the indirect object. When he communicated back to me, he's the subject, I'm now the indirect object. So we have a return communication here. This is the sort of the, the response part of your magic. The phenomenon is that you were attempting to create, whether it was to heal someone, yourself or someone else, whether it was to create a new work of art, etc. The phenomenon that is returned to you by the result of this communication returned to you the action that you were seeking to create. You essentially begin this loop and then you then become the subject of a new magical act, and so on and so forth. So this explains things in, in a different way than we have typically conceptualize magic. Certainly outside of Temple Discourse, it adds some new things into what we look at within Temple Discourse. And as we saw here, this is just a brief presentation on this. Entire books could be written about this. In fact, my next book is, you might have guessed, about this. Um, <laughs> 
there are some other things that, that if we had the time, and, and I do appreciate the being able to take advantage of, of this time, so I don't want to um, abuse that by going over. There are some much deeper and additional thoughts that can be had around the nature of performance of utterances in particular, as well as some of the more general applicability of symbiotics to, to magic. Of course, you're welcome to speak to me at any time here or after if you want to discuss any of these ideas further. I even have some wacky theories about, about both and how that fits into this as well. I think we, we sort of talk about those in the order of the trapezoid working as well. So I want to very briefly talk about the frame of reference and, and uh, similarity um, and then uh, bring it to a close here. So when you do a magic, uh, an act of magic, you're working within a frame of reference. Frame of reference is everything about the act that you're doing. It could be the symbols that you use, it's the cultural representations you bring to it, your own thoughts about it, the people you're working with, etc. Back to our previous example of the magical act of pronouncing someone uh, to be married, the frame of reference is the culture within which you're doing it. It's also the authority of the person performing it. It's also the fact that you're doing this in the correct situation, the correct time. To take a much more different example, in working with the Nine Angles, the frame of reference you're working with is the, uh, the works of H.P. Lovecraft, but also with the uh, platonic ideas of number, also with linguistic acts uh, as then a created synthetic language that causes certain things to happen in certain ways. So frame of reference is very important for magical acts. It's very important for communicative acts. If I stopped someone on the street and started talking to them about this stuff, they would think I'm crazy. I stand up in here with a bunch of slides and, and you guys go, ooh, ah, that's awesome. <laughs> frame of reference makes a difference. All of the knowledge and understanding you bring to something is part of that frame of reference. So I want to leave with, with one last quote and then we're done for now. Please feel free to find me to talk further about any of these ideas. Some of you are falling asleep already, some, which is fine. Uh, some of you are, I'm sure, thinking this is the best thing you've ever heard. That's not quite true either, but, but I appreciate that. <laughs> um, the, the majority of you are in between, however, that don't bother me. Part of my own beginning to conceptualize how all this works and thinking about wh what is magic thinking about it in ways beyond just uh, the setting of my magic theory of the universe, um, is this is final thought. Because we are able to conceive of things as they do not yet exist, we are able to reconfigure our awareness and our environment to bring them into being in the, in the desired form, and to utilize symbolic behavior and operative communication as essential components of this practice. So this is the essence of why we can and do magic. And I hope that this was perhaps opening your eyes a bit to other ways of, of looking at this. There are various of us that are looking at expanding on still foundational work. We're not, we're not intending to replace it, but uh, by drawing to other fields, other disciplines, other uh, means of understanding this, there are ways we can make this be an even more effective model, which makes all of us even more effective magicians. And that's really the reason we're part of the temple, is to be more effective magicians. And the more we understand how to do that, and the more we are able to communicate effectively with each other new ways of approaching this that enhance our effectiveness, the better we are doing the work of the Prince of Darkness. So, so thank you. If you dug the Black Flame Tarot, then you've got to have the Black Flame Tarot book. The Black Flame Tarot, an Invocation of Fire guidebook for the Black Flame Tarot deck, written by Jennifer and Paul McAtee, with a foreword by Don Webb. 
Black Flame Tarot is a magical working and a powerful tool for divination. This book explores different ways of working with the deck and also discusses the origins, ideas, and inspiration that have contributed to its creation. For people interested in the tarot and left-hand path ideas, this book will help you maximize your personal growth, connect with your inner reality, and offer practical tips and techniques for problem solving and making decisions in everyday situations. Visit lulu.com and search Black Flame Taro now to get your copy. You will not regret it.